first thing uh, that I want to do tonight to introduce our study is uh, I wanted to share a quote with you from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And the quote says, Christianity without discipleship is always Christianity without Christ. And so what I think he was getting at with that statement is that if you take the teachings of Christ and you separate what he says about who he is and what he expects from us, and you separate that from that term Christianity, um, at that point you merely have Christianity in name because it, it's void of the true Christ. And so when we consider this word discipleship, you, you won't find it in the Bible. We use this term really to refer to the relationship between Christ and his disciples and how he walked with them, really, how he uh, taught them, what they learned from him, uh, how they related to one another. That's really what we're talking about when we say discipleship. Now, this Greek word that's uh, translated disciple, it's found about 269 times in the New Testament. And what it really means is a learner or a pupil. And it's a bit different from what we think about uh, with the relationship between a student and a teacher in today's time. Uh, it involved a much deeper commitment. It involved uh, learning to be like your teacher, walking with your teacher. And we'll, we'll see a little bit more about this as we continue on in our study tonight. Now, interestingly, the followers of Christ were called disciples up until the book of Acts in chapter 11 in Antioch. And then they got this new name that, that that they uh, carried on with them, which was Christian. So this term disciple and Christian appear to be synonymous. Okay, well, I have an outline tonight uh, for those of you who may wanna take notes. And what we'll really be covering is uh, four topics, the call of discipleship, the cost of discipleship, evidences of true discipleship, and we'll include biblical fruit in that. Uh, and then lastly, rewards of discipleship. And so I'll go ahead and get into the first uh, passage that we'll read. And this is known as the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, uh, the great evangelistic call for all Christians to go out into the world and share the gospel. Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been provided to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore make disciples for all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even till the end of the age. So the first point, I, there's three main points that we get out of this passage uh, that I wanna talk about. The first one is that we're to go and we're to make disciples of all. And so we can't do this by staying at home, uh, not getting involved in ministry, not getting involved in God's work with him and his people. So the first thing is that we have to get out there in order to fulfill this commandment. And we're to share the message with all. Uh, this, this isn't a message that we just decide that we're gonna share with some, you know, only a group of people, but really the intent and the aim of this is that this message is, is, is given to everyone. Secondly, we're to baptize in the name of the triune God. And this is a significant point that I think can be overlooked, but um, I think it's really important here because what Jesus is saying is that if you're going to identify with me, you need to make sure that you're identifying with the one and true only God. Uh, there's, 
people and there's cults out there that will say that Jesus is not the same essence as the Father. Uh, he's just a prophet. Uh, they have no room for maybe the Holy Spirit in the Godhead or <clears throat> they focus on just what Jesus taught and what they liked that he said and they remove the Father out of the picture altogether. And uh, what Jesus is saying here is that if you're going to identify with me, you need to make sure it's who I really am, nothing more, nothing less. <clears throat> so the third point is that we're to teach them to observe all that he commanded. Uh, where do we find all that he commanded? In the Bible. In it talks about the whole counsel of God. It talks about rightly dividing the word of truth. And so when I think about the Bible, I think about a great treasure that was like broken up into a bunch of puzzle pieces and thrown throughout a box, mixed up, and then it was scattered throughout it. And if we're going to get that full treasure, we have to mine that out uh, and, and put all those pieces together that fit together. Now, this is a command for all Christians. Uh, this is not what's being referred to in 1 Corinthians, where it talks about some having gifts of evangelism, some having gifts of uh, teaching. Um, this is a command that we're all supposed to meet, and we need to meet it exactly where we're at. Here at Calvary Chapel, I think we have a great opportunity to do that with the JET team. It's very unique. Uh, a lot of churches don't have that, and it's a blessing to be here. And um, you know, if you're not comfortable talking with people, sharing the message, answering questions, that's okay because there's people that'll be there with you. Uh, there's tracks there that you can start reading and kind of get the general idea of the message. And behind all of your chairs, there's a card with the church contact information. It has phone numbers. So you can refer them to somebody here at the church if you're not comfortable. But I think uh, the, the important thing here is that we meet this command where we're at. I mean, later in our walk, we may feel comfortable to answer questions and, and, and to uh, share more about the word, but we don't have to do that. We can, we can do this exactly where we're at. All right, well, our, our next topic is, uh, I'm gonna focus on the call to the first disciples in Matthew 4, 18 through 22. And it tells us, now as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets, and they followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. So we see three proper reactions in this passage when they were called. The first is that they immediately responded to what he, he, he required. Um, and, you know, today is the day of opportunity. Uh, we don't know if we have tomorrow. The Bible warns us of that. So if an opportunity is on the table, we need to take it while it's there because we're not sure if we'll, we'll even be alive tomorrow. Secondly, they left everything behind. They left their nets, they left their boats, they left their father, they left fishing, which was their livelihood. They basically left all of their security and their comfort 
trusting and having faith that Jesus had something better in store for them. And this is how he wants us to follow him in that way. And then lastly, we see that they did follow him. Uh, I'll talk a little bit more about following Jesus later in our study um, when it comes up again. So we see a contrast response in Luke 9, verse 59 by some others. Uh, It says that he said to another, follow me, which is speaking of Jesus. But he said, Lord, permit me to go and bury my father. But he said to them, allow the dead to bury the dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. So three improper reactions we see when they were called. Uh, This term, bury my father, by the way, it was a common figure of speech if we look at how it was used back in that time. Uh, And it meant that you would receive your inheritance. So you got one guy saying, I need to go back. I need to get my inheritance first. And then you've got the other guy saying, well, let me go home, talk to my family, see if they're okay with this, if they're all right with it. And, And then if everything's all right, I'll come back and I'll follow you. And this isn't the response that Jesus was expecting from them. Uh, in fact, we, we see that he said that if you put your hand to the plow and you look back, uh, you're, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. So he really wants us to wholeheartedly follow him. And we, we, we see that first, you know, they deferred to follow him immediately. Secondly, they held on to other desires, which, which ultimately led them not to follow him. Um, And, you know, the Lord may not call you to leave everything, every desire that you have in your life. Uh, He calls different people to leave different things, some to leave some, others to leave other things. But I think anything that gets in the way of you following his will, his call for your life, those are the kind of things that we have to be willing to let go of so they don't get in the way of us following him. All right, well, we're going to transition now into the second Uh, point in tonight's study, which is the cost of discipleship. And we'll spend quite a bit of time here. Um, I'll go ahead and open it up with Luke, uh, starting in verse 23 of the ninth chapter. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? And so there's going to be nine costs to consider. Um, The first one is the denial of self. And when we talk about denial of self, think about all your ideas, your desires, your dreams, anything that basically you would want to hold on to that would be contrary to what God has in store for you, his will, his call for your life. Those are the things that we have to be willing to deny in order that we can follow his way. Uh, There's obvious things that we would have to deny. Um, The Bible explicitly names uh, a lot of those. I can think of a few, drunkenness, sex outside of marriage, uh, drugs. Um, Then there's others that are a little bit harder to detect, like pride, jealousy, coveting. Uh, But I want to take a moment and talk about something that's not so obvious because we're here at this point and we're talking about all these things that we have to do and that we don't do. 
And I think it can be really easy to misunderstand here and think that, you know, we're, we're advocating that we have to kind of pull some self-will and, you know, live a self-righteous kind of religious path where uh, we try to do what we're doing to earn favor or not do what we're doing to earn favor in the eyes of God positionally. And that's not what we're saying here. Um, we do what we do because it's out of gratitude with a holistic love for what Jesus did to us. And so when we talk about, well, what did Jesus do for us? So Jesus lived a perfect and sinful life, a sinless life, sorry, and he earned the right and the reward to have relationship with God eternal uh, and to enter into the kingdom of heaven. <clears throat> and he transferred that to our account, and then he took all of the sins that kept us out of heaven and then kept us away with that relationship from God, and he transferred those to his account, went to the cross, and he paid the penalty for those. So that's what we trust in. We trust in the work that Jesus did on the cross. It's not what I do or what I don't do that brings favor before me and, and, and gets me right with God. It's what Jesus did. And if we're truly trusting in that, um, the Holy Spirit will, if it's sincere and it's genuine, our faith and our trust is all in, in what Jesus did, the Holy Spirit will come and will reside in our lives and, uh, and, and he'll remain there with us. And we will respond to Jesus uh, with holistic love. And when I say holistic love, again, I'm, I'm not saying... Uh, that it's just what we think about Jesus or what we say about Jesus. Um, it, it's also how we act towards Jesus. So I'm going to veer off for just a minute because I, I, I don't want to be misunderstood here with this. And I think even though this is a little off topic, it's very important to discipleship and our walk with Christ and how we do that uh, properly. Um, so... This does not mean that we're going to become instantly glorified as in our final state and become perfect and sinless here on the earth. I just want to clarify that uh, when we talk about the Holy Spirit coming and residing. Um, 1 John 1.8 explains that if we have no sin, if we say that, then we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. And it was the Apostle Paul himself in 2 Timothy 4 who told us that he fought the good fight, he finished the course, and he kept the faith. And then yet he's this very same author who tells us in Romans chapter 7 that the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. So he also mentions members of his body, and I want to highlight the next term, waging war against the law of his mind. And then he concludes, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So he further explains in Romans 8 that what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin, so that this requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And he kind of 
explain this in a different way to the Jews earlier in that chapter. He, he said that a Jew is not just a Jew inwardly, but um, it's, a Jew is one who is also a Jew outwardly. And he, he also talked about circumcision and said it's not just outward. It's circumcision, which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter or the law. Uh, and his praise is not from men, but from God. So now, follow me. I know this is a little deep, but if we take all of this and we go to John 3, 5, Jesus tells us that we must be born again in order to enter the kingdom of God. We have to be born again of the spirit, and he tells us that flesh is born of flesh, spirit is born of spirit, and he tells us that it's kind of like the wind. It, 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 it blows where it wishes, and we hear the sound of it, but we don't know where it goes, and this is how it is with the Spirit, those who are born of the Spirit. So in all this, we see the opposition of the Spirit and the flesh, the old nature and the new nature of the Christian, and, and it's referred to as a war. Now, when we talk about the flesh, that talks really what we're saying is um, that that defines what our, our fallen human nature is, our sinful nature. In the Garden of Eden, when man and woman listened to Satan and they ate of the tree in the middle of the garden, uh, they acted independently of God and Satan used this moment as kind of the vehicle to introduce corruption into the nature of mankind. And the flesh was born in humanity. It would be inherited by us all. So I, I, I don't think that our focus should necessarily be on whether we fail or, or whether we'll be perfect or not, because uh, these verses that I just shared seem to indicate we'll, we'll certainly um, fail and not be perfect. But I think what our focus really should be on is did we experience the rebirth the, and the new nature that came into our lives and remained there? Now, I'm not talking about a temporal excitement or interest like we learn about in the parable of the soils in Matthew 13, uh, which quickly fades away with affliction, persecution, the worries of this life, and the deceitfulness of wealth. But we learn in Matthew 13 that the one whom on the seed that was sown on good soil, this was the man who hears the word, understands it, and who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some 60, and some 30. So everyone does not mature in the same way at the same pace, but we should certainly all be bringing forth some type of fruit in our life. And I'll talk a little bit more about fruit later in the study, uh, but this is certainly a good question that we, that we need to ask ourselves, which evidences the new nature. So did we experience the new nature brought upon us by the Holy Spirit where we entered into this lifelong struggle between the spirit of the, I'm sorry, between the spirit and the old nature of the flesh? Is there a battle in our life or is there none at all? Uh, do we find that we're loving what God loves and hating what God hates even though our flesh would uh, be tempted to do otherwise? So Jesus tells us that on these two commandments, the entire law and the prophets rest. He says that the first is that we're to love our God with all our heart, our soul, and our mind. And the second is that we should love our neighbor as ourself. And we got to ask, does this describe the aim of our love in our life? 
have we truly placed all of our faith and trust into the hands of Jesus, not just our successes, but also our failures? If not, it's never too late for us to humble ourselves before him and ask him to provide what we need and what we lack. And I'll, uh, right before I get back on topic, sorry, I just want to clarify, um, does this mean that we're saying that we, we, we don't follow the law, we just throw it out and, and, and we disregard it? Absolutely not. Uh, Paul tells us in Romans 3 that uh, on the contrary, we establish the law. So the law has its purpose. Um, it's called holy, it's called good, um, but the law does not give us right relationship with Christ and God, and it does not produce the new nature. So we need to keep it in its proper perspective. All right, well, so back on topic about trusting Jesus and not ourselves. Uh, I'll give you a few verses to hit the point home. Uh, Matthew 5.20 tells us that unless our righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, we will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And now the Pharisees were the religious elite. They had laws upon laws. They went beyond what God's law stated. And the scribes, they copied God's word over and over, said they had all the knowledge of it. And what Jesus was saying is that men at their best religiously, if you don't do better than that, then you won't make it. That's not good enough. We see in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18, uh, it talks about the ones who trust in themselves that they're righteous and they view others with contempt. The Pharisee uh, stood, he was praying to himself, God, thank you, I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like the tax collector next to me. I fast twice a week. I pay all the tithes from what I get. Uh, he, there was a tax collector who was despised in their culture because they uh, took taxes and they worked for Rome and gave them uh, to Rome, uh, and they were taking them from their own people. He, he wouldn't even look to heaven, and he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And so we were told that he went home justified and not uh, the other person, which was the Pharisee, because those who exalt themselves will be exalted, and uh, those who, sorry, those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So there's many false religions out there, and they appeal to the flesh. Um, you know, just, it's the pride of life, self-sufficiency, self-sustainment, you just have to do some things or abstain from other things, and then you can uh, earn a relationship and earn the right to enter the kingdom of God uh, with him. And, and, and what is the irony in those, and actually some of them uh, identify with Christianity, they just add Christ to it and say, well, it's Christ plus these things that you have to do, or Christ plus these things that you can't do. The irony of their approach is that it's the very same approach that, that Satan used in the garden uh, to separate us from God in the first place. And, um, you know, it's doing it our way instead of doing it his way. And it's depending on ourselves instead of depending on God. They disregard what we learn in Romans 3.28 that tells us that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And what they do is they deceitfully take us away from the sufficiency of what God did for us by leading us away from the belief that Jesus on the cross 
is the only acceptable sacrifice and provision for our sins to be forgiven, period. And lastly, we see in Galatians 3, that uh, verse 23 of, of chapter 3, I'm sorry, that before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. And so the law shows us our shortcoming, how we cannot meet the perfect standard of God. That's what leads us to have faith and trust in the work that Jesus did for us where we came short. So on a practical sense, you may be asking them, what do we do if we, if we can't meet the standard? Uh, you know, this is a tough standard to live out. Um, and, you know, a couple verses that I can think that speak to this, uh, Matthew 7, 7 says that we should ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find, knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds and to him who knocks it will be opened. And 1 John 1, 9 says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we're going to go to Jesus. We're going to ask him to make us what he wants us to be through his spirit supernaturally, where we lack in our own ability to do that uh, in our own strength. And we're going to confess our sins to him. Uh, we're not going to pretend like they don't exist. We're not going to hide them. Uh, but we're actually going to uh, bring them forward to him so that, that they can be addressed. All right, well... I think we said enough about that. On, on the next point, we're at uh, taking up the cross daily. That's our, our second uh, cost that we have to consider. The, the cross was an instrument of death. This is death to the self-life. It's no longer I'm going to be doing things my way uh, and not God's way, but it's actually the opposite. I'm, I'm going to live my live life out uh, to follow where God wants me to go. And the word daily is important because this is a relationship that he's calling us to. It's a lifelong commitment. Uh, it's not just a one-time decision where we walk down an aisle or we say a prayer and then we walk away unaffected with no relationship. Uh, but this is actually a lifelong walk and commitment that he's asking us to have with them. And on that note, I want to say there's nothing wrong with us uh, coming to Christ walking down an aisle or, or saying a prayer, but really that should be the beginning of our, where our relationship starts. It shouldn't be the ending, uh, given that we've been provided with time to cultivate that relationship further. So lastly, or I'm sorry, thirdly, um, following Jesus, I got a really good example of that uh, with Peter in, in John chapter 21. Uh, Jesus told Peter that you're going to be a martyr for me so that you can bring me glory. And he told Peter, uh, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk where you wished. But when you grow old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. And so Peter didn't like that. He, he kind of said, whoa. Um, and he looked around and he saw one of the other disciples and said, oh, well, what about him? And the Lord said, well, what about him? Uh, what if I want him to be around till I come back to earth a second time? That's not for you to be concerned about, Peter. I need you to follow where I need you to go. And so we learn in that passage that, you know, we really shouldn't be focusing on what God's doing in other people's lives. But we should really focus on uh, what God's doing in our own life, 
where he wants us to go, what he wants us to do, what he's he saying to us, um, and, and not uh, compare ourselves to others. And then lastly, I'm sorry, uh, fourthly, losing your life in order to save it. So we, we, we really have to be willing to live in a way that uh, God calls us to live and not on our own course. It's, it's the supernatural and spiritual way versus the way of the flesh. Okay, well, love costs to consider. In Luke 14, 25 through 35, it says, large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, and he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple, and whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Uh, and then down in verse 33 of the same chapter, it says, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. So we see in this passage the fifth and sixth cost, which is we have to love him more than family, and we need to love him more than self. And this, this, tracing this word hate, the way that it was used in the original language, uh, it, it really meant to love less than. And we see a good parallel passage of this in, in Matthew 10:37, where it says, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So this is how strong our love is to be for Jesus. It, it needs to be primary, and, and he's saying that we need to put it at the forefront. Now, most of you know the passage, seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all other things will be added unto you. And uh, so this is a primary love that we're being called to. And in verses 28, through 32 of this chapter, he tells us that we have to count the costs. Um, he likens it to building a tower or going to war, and he's saying that we need to seriously consider uh, what, 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 what this cost is and, and what we're getting into and not just walk into this without any thought. Okay, well, some student costs to consider. So Matthew 10, 24 through 25 uh, it says, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they call the head of the head house Beelzebul, how much more will they mal malign the members of his household? So this term Beelzebul was a name that they used for prince of the demons. And... You'll find that in Luke 11. And so they were basically calling him Satan here. And so in these verses that we just read, we, this, we really find the goal of discipleship here. And that's for us to be more like Christ. We, that's our goal, to be more like our teacher. Not a, and we're not above our teacher. That's our, our seventh cost. Um, and... You know, some people want to go outside this. They want to be popular. They want to win everybody over. Uh, they want to be accepted by everybody. But this is not what, what we should do because this is not the model that, that, that Jesus gave us. Um, he shared the truth in love, and then he left it at that. So when we talk about our, our eighth cost being like the teacher, it could be really easy to become discouraged um, if Peter 
for example, took a, a moments in his life where he uh, failed and cursed three times, I'm sorry, denied Christ three times, cursed, uh, lied. Um, it could be real easy to say, I better put up the towel, I better just quit. And that's not God's calling to us. He used Peter in great ways after this to help build the church. And so we're going to fail, uh, but we need to pick ourselves back up and focus on the line of sight, which is to be more like Jesus, our, our teacher. And so again, I mean, we said that this would be a lifelong struggle. Uh, we'll have ups and downs throughout our walk. Some sins we, we may be able to have victory over immediately. Others we may struggle uh, much harder with. But it, it's a fight that we're committed to. Uh, we're, we don't give up, we don't give in, we persist and we persevere. And the ninth cost, uh, we should expect suffering. Um, if we share the message and live the life that testifies to the message that he did, then uh, we probably will feel some kind of persecution in our life. So if, if we're not seeing persecution, it, it may be that we're not sharing the whole message um, or that we're not living in a way that, that testifies of that message. But, uh, you know, Jesus certainly uh, was persecuted because of what he said and how he lived. All right, well, next is uh, Triumph Through Taught Truth in John 8. And... Verse 31 says, uh, to the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Verse 32 says, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So where is his teachings found? We talked about that throughout the entire Bible. Um, we need to learn it. We need to be able to live it out so that we can also share it with others. And this... I'll give you a verse, uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, which is good. It says, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. So this uh, second phrase that we're looking at, know the truth which will set you free, this is not just an acknowledgement of facts. I'll give you a, couple ex a few examples. In Acts 8, Philip wanted to be baptized. I'm sorry, the eunuch wanted to be baptized by Philip, and he said, uh, Philip told him, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And then the eunuch replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And that's when the uh, chariot stopped and, and, and Philip baptized him. James 2.19 tells us that you believe God is one, you do good, but the demons also believe and shudder. And John 4.22 tells us that God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So this is not just the mental knowledge that we're talking about. It, it encompasses our motives, our attitudes, um, as well as what we acknowledge as just facts. And then next we're told that we need, we're, we're to love even more. Uh, John 13, 34 says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So this is uh, our third topic in the study. Uh, another evidence is that we will love one another as he loved us. <clears throat> and 
if we ask, well, how did Jesus love us? Uh, a good verse that tells us about that is John 15, 12, and 13. It says, uh, greater, that l greater love that has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. So Jesus was willing to self-sacrificially live, even unto the point of death, for the betterment of us. And that's exactly how he wants us to love others. Um, what a testimony to the world about the supernatural relationship with God that we have going against the grain of the flesh and caring for others as we care for ourselves. Next, we see that the world may have hostility towards you. Uh, John 15, 18, 20 says that if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Because of this, the, the world hates you. Remember the, world that I said, or the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will, also, they will keep yours also. So when we talk about the world here, we're not talking about the physical planet. We're not talking about uh, just the people per se. It's really the ideology, the, the, the system of Satan, the message that he gets out there in the world, the lies. Um, and, you know, some of the people, a lot of the people will believe that. And so if we come with them with a message that's contrary to that, they, they may not be happy about that. Uh, they may show um, aggression uh, and they may be even more hostile and they may persecute. So um, we should expect that because in Ephesians 6, 12, it tells us our struggles not against flesh and blood, but it's against rulers, powers, world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So this is a spiritual warfare we're, we're, we're referring to here. And in 2 Corinthians 10, it tells us that uh, our weapons of our warfare are not flesh, but they're divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations, every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Next is uh, bearing fruit. That's another evidence. In John 15, Jesus tells us that uh, basically, he is the vine, and we're the branches, and we can't do anything apart from him. And then in, in verse 8, it tells us, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. So, bearing fruit, there's, there's attitude fruit, there's action fruit listed in the Bible. Uh, Galatians 5:22 through 23 tells us that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control are our attitude fruit. And then we find action fruit in Romans 1. It talks about bringing others to Christ. In Philippians 1, it talks about righteousness. In Philippians 4, it talks about giving. In Hebrews 13, it, it, it mentions saying thanks to him. And in Colossians 1, it says, doing any good work. So in Romans 7, we, we, we learn that uh, 
we were made to die to the law through the body of Christ in order that we might bear fruit for God. And, um, you know, in contrast to fruit for God, there's, there's the deeds of the flesh. So um, I, I won't get back into that, uh, but, you know, I think the Bible tells us to examine ourselves to see whether we're in the faith. And I think, you know, this, this, this struggle between the old nature and uh, the new nature um, that's, that's, that's a good place for us to start in doing that. Um, did we, did we experience the new birth? Uh, do we have fruit in our lives? Do we, uh, love God as primary and seek holiness because of our love for him? Uh, do we love others as we love ourselves? So th that's a good place for us to start with that question. All right. Well, lastly, uh, rewards of a disciple in Matthew 19, 28 through 30, it, it says that, uh, truly I say to you, you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. So we see the three rewards here that will sit upon thrones judging. We will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. Uh, I think this, this may be a little bit difficult for us in America to relate to because um, you know, many of us come out of households that have Christianity in name, so we don't uh, experience that level of persecution where we have to separate from family and, and things like that. But, you know, I will say that if we're really walking with the Lord, um, there will be probably some other types of more subtle, uh, you know, conflict. Um, because if you're walking in the way that the Lord wants you to walk and there's other people that want you to walk the way that they think you should walk, you, you might experience that conflict. And, you know, it, it's much easier to compromise when you're at, in that situation because it's not as clear and it's not as uh, abrupt. So, um, you know, just something for us to think about. Well, I'll close with a, a work story and uh, hopefully you all can relate to this. So think about you just got a new job. Uh, you signed off on all the policies, the procedures, the vision statement, the mission statement, and you're pumped up, you're ready to go, you're, you're, you're willing to, uh, follow all the expectations that they tell you that they have and then stop there fast forward about a year later so somebody's whispering into your ear yeah you know I don't really like this it's kind of stupid uh, ah, I don't like that I don't do it that way I do it this way and so what is the point that we're getting at here when we talk about discipleship what 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 was what was I trying to say in all this um, really uh, you see we can be part of an organization um, in word, but not in thought and in action. And so what Jesus is saying here is that you're not just joining an organization. It's not just being part of a church or joining a ministry. Um, that, that's not what he's uh, calling us to. He's calling us to a lifelong commitment, relationship, and um, you know, that's what he expects from us.